Hello and welcome to MetaFace podcast. I am Olena, a PhD student in stem cell biology, and here I talk to scientists who were courageous to take a leap from academia to jungles of business world. And today I was lucky to get Chris Richter, a data scientist with a solid background in biomechanics. In this conversation, we are going to discuss what is biomechanics and motion capture and how it can be used to make movies or even to relieve the back pain. In addition, we will speak about what are the main challenges of being a data scientist in industry and tech world. Hey, Chris. Hello, Olena. I know you did a sport engineering degree in Germany, and then you went to Ireland to do your PhD in biomechanics, right? Correct. Yeah, and uh, can you briefly explain on what exactly you worked there and what have you learned from that experience? At my PhD, I was supposed to to study inertia sensors and tennis, but as research usually goes, I never actually touched an inertia sensor. Because the first task was to identify new or novel data analysis techniques to identify meaningful features within a signal, with which I actually stuck uh, my whole career and which made me to switch from being a sports scientist to an actual, I would, yeah, I think I could call myself a data scientist at this stage. So basically in the PhD, we tried to identify um, what features are relevant to make predictions in terms of performance or injury, how can we classify human movements, and try to basically capture the essence of a signal describing a dependent variable and also try to validate what's the best technique to actually identify performance or injury risk factors. And all of this is related to motion capture, is it right? Correct. So in my PhD, I worked mostly with a signal that's called the ground reaction force um, because the ground reaction force determines to 100% jump height during a jump. So we could use this as a ground truth for a dependent variable. So if you have a signal which describes 100% of a dependent variable, uh-huh. I had a very easy task in identifying which analysis technique best describes my dependent variable. You mean how the tennis players jump? So in this case, as I said, I never touched an inertia sensor nor a tennis player in my PhD. <laughs> exactly, sorry. We had a lot of people jumping. And if you capture the forces applied to the ground via physics, you can calculate jump height. So basically, the signal you have now captured uh-huh. describes to 100% your dependent variable jump height. So in my PhD, I just looked at a lot of people jumping and a lot of vertical ground reaction forces. Um, and only later or during, I would say, after at supervising mm-hmm. master and bachelor students, I basically used more advanced motion capture systems, such as an optical motion capture system, where you usually, I would say, glue markers onto someone's skin. Um, these markers can be captured by a camera. Mm-hmm. If you have multiple cameras within a room, you can triangulate the actual position, the 2D position of every camera of the marker, and you can then calculate Mm -hmm. a 3D position of the marker. And even doing more calculations, uh, you can then start to calculate joint reaction force, uh, Mm -hmm. joint angles, and combining this information, so if you now fuse the information from the markers and from the force platforms in the ground, we use quite often, Mm -hmm. you can now start calculating joint moments, joint powers, and god knows what else and what you can do with it actually in everyday life how people use it 
people will use this quite often in, I would say, in, in all the sports science, you will find this. So a lot of professional teams will test their players. Pre how, how do they look preseason? And how do they look throughout the season? So are there some changes? And if the changes now predispose a player to an injury, mm -hmm. or if a player actually had an injury, mm -hmm. and you, you want to know throughout the rehabilitation, when is the player fit to return to play? Mm -hmm. And what you usually would use, you would use the blueprint you have captured preseason. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say I always had a jump height of 30 centimeters. Mm -hmm. And... At my rehabilitation, so after I got injured, I got unfit, I now only hit a 20 centimeter mark. Mm -hmm. Throughout rehabilitation, I will now start to increase my jump height again. And because I know how high I jumped preseason, mm -hmm. I now can say, okay, Chris, the moment you hit the 30 centimeters again, you can go back to play. So at the end of the day, what you try to do is how did someone look before the injury and try to identify the moment when he or she looks similar to this point again. So you can release them back to sports. And I think then, if you look even farther, the most professional teams, and I know Liverpool is doing this, they would also use then machine learning. On I think I saw that conference, we have a very advanced Excel sheet. Um, they just plug in what is the training they're going to have next week. And based on an... Mm -hmm. On a machine learning algorithm, it will tell you the risk of the players getting injured. So that would mean now the physiotherapist can go back, change the parameters, and actually see is now the training, I'm going to say, less insurers in order to prevent players from getting injured. Mm -hmm. Just for, you know, general public, this, uh, this technology which you use to uh, capture the motion and to calculate the injury probabilities is also used to do something else. Yes, so the easiest form of a force platform you see in your bathroom every day you step on the scale. Really? Um, that's, yeah, at the end of the day, that's a force platform. Now, just the force, plat the force platform in the lab will be way more advanced. Your force platform in the bath is called the scale, and it can only measure the vertical ground reaction force. If you now use a more advanced device, it can measure the forces in all three directions with a much higher sampling rate. Um, other fields which use motion capture, any animation industry like computer games mm -hmm. or film studios, mm -hmm. which basically use this technology to create movies like Avatar or any EA sports game you will ever see will have will have used this or will have been created using this technology. Oh, interesting. So, and after your PhD, I know you made one year postdoc and then you started working at the sports surgery clinic in Dublin. Was it difficult actually to find this first job out of academia? I'm going to say no, but I'm also making a disclaimer here. I was very lucky after I finished my PhD, the sports surgery clinic had funded a postdoc position in the Dublin City University which basically funded my postdoc position. So I worked already half time for the clinic. In doing the postdoc time, I basically applied research, this time actually using inertia sensors, but also did help the clinic to examine their data, to process their data. Mm -hmm. And after one year, they actually saw the fit that I could, or the benefit I could bring to the clinic. And they hired me in full time as a head of biomechanics. Okay, a beautiful story. And can you tell, please, uh, what was fun part of that job in the clinic and what was challenging? So challenging things are probably the one things I should start with because there are a lot of them. 
when you do a PhD, you usually deal with 100, maybe 200 subjects. The moment you go into the real world, we are talking about 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people straight away when multiple data captures. So all the codes you have developed, which have a lot of for loops within them <laughs> and work fine for 20, 30 people, <laughs> slow down significantly the moment you talk about huge data sets. So one thing is you need to learn how to code using indexes or basically try to avoid any kind of loop. Um, another challenge is in, in research, you will find a lot of like-minded people. You will, I will say you, you will be collected in a group of nerds where everyone finds correlations, statistics, mm -hmm. whatever, integrations. They will all love it and they will all want to talk to you about it. The problem is in a business world, you will start meeting business people, HR people, finance people. And they don't speak the same language as you do. So you do need to start learning speaking a different language, presenting your findings differently, because people out there don't care about a lovely table anymore and a good um, AOC or a good accuracy. They what is AOC, sorry? Area under curve from uh, receiver operating curve. So if you do a machine learning or if you do any, if you train any model, you want to know how accurate it is. Mm -hmm. And the AOCs or the area under the curve is just an accuracy measure, such as um, accuracy. However, if you do, if you measure accuracy in a population where only 2% get injured, it's very easy to generate a code which gives you findings with a 90%, 98% accuracy, because you only need to default doesn't injure, or patient will not injure. So you need to start using other accuracy measures. But to come back to the point, as we just noticed, not everyone knows what this is. Um, and you talk to different skill sets. So you need to start presenting your findings in a different way. You need to start presenting your approaches in a different way. And I basically learned the best way to do this is nice graphs and videos to take people step by step through the stuff you're actually doing. Um, so you shouldn't assume anymore that people know what is a transformation to Z-scores um, or, or anything else you know from academia to be normal. It's not normal anymore. So you, you need to have very small, precise steps and need to try to explain everything very uncomplicated, which I'm not sure I have done very well right now. <laughs> no, it's great. So... When we talk about this communication to non-specialists or just business people, which superpower you have built, you know, with the experience in presenting the data, how to make your message clear and convincing that people actually make the decisions? That's, I would say the easiest thing is the visualization. So at the end of the day, you make a presentation. Ideally, it hasn't it has not a single word on it <laughs> and you start to reveal a picture how a machine learning tool works. So that means you start off with a pool of people, then split them into different people so that they know, okay, here we have a test data set, a training data set. And then if you start to explain cross validations to advance, split them up. So rather than showing you, or basically it's like coding just in creating graphs and every graph needs to be meaningful and catchy and if you actually manage to find the right graphs 
people will, will continue listening to you and also the graph makes it much more easy and allows you to, to bring through it step by step. And then it's, yeah, then it's repetition, mm-hmm. but also leaving out, I think leaving out the stuff which interests you most. Sometimes, like for me, it was always how many principal components should you extract, which I always found interesting, or how did we filter the data? Like, yeah, I think most of the stakeholders don't really care about it. And they only want to know, are you confident in what you have done? What are our findings? What can we expect from this model? Like, what is our range of accuracy? Or what is your range of accuracy? And I think you need to start building up on the take-home message and then have an easy way to explain how you've done it. And ideally, it's through a nice picture. Mm -hmm. The problem is, these pictures usually don't create themselves. And I can tell you for the last paper I did, which was an editorial on machine learning and sports science, if I calculate the hours together, I probably needed three weeks to create one figure, Um, which then the good thing is you can always recycle because if you have it once, you can use it. But building it in the start is a very intense process. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because, uh, you know, I'm in my PhD, I'm working with uh, also big data and uh, Python, I use Matplotlib, and it took me a really uh, long time to come up to the type of the graph, which would convey a complex idea. And, but since uh, I got it, it was pretty simple. Yeah. I think then if you even have an animation makes it even better. So if you have a, yeah, you just need to have a nice flow in your graph. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, being a scientist, we always want to create perfect things. My question is uh, when you build the model and uh, when you try to train the model and you have the accuracy and you want to make it better and better, when do you stop personal? When do you see, okay, I have to stop. I have to bring the result to the table. So I think there's quite easy. There's there's never a perfect algorithm. And it's the same in, in academia. But I think what is what needs to be done at the very start is the goal setting of the stakeholders. So what is actually the accuracy you want to achieve? So if I only want to have an accuracy of, let's say, 70% and you hit in your first try above the 70, you are done. So you can then go straight away to the stakeholders and say, listen, I'm done. I have done the code, which works ABC. It hits the target. However, I think we could improve it in, Mm -hmm. again, ABC, which would improve, I don't know, X further percent. And I think then it's always down to the business people, to to actual, the people who drive the product to decide, okay, we invest time or we don't invest time. So I think then after you first hit the target, it's, you really need to decide what's the trade-off between putting in more work and actually just increasing by by a few percent or by a lot. Um, and what's the value to the to the actual business? So previously in the clinic, it was it would have always been if we can achieve high accuracy, we should always go for it because the less people get injured. In industry, that's been a different story. Mm-hmm. Such a question in everyday life uh, as a data scientist, do you encounter in different projects the same problem? And if yes, what is the problem? That's easy. It's unclean data. <laughs> everybody, everybody complains about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any. I, I don't think there, there will never be clean data because even if the data is clean, you have developed something, you start looking at something new, something is integrated, and there's probably no such thing. So the biggest problem is, I would almost say, double checking what is in your data, what's not in your data, and then also 
going back to revert findings you have already, I would say, given to to your senior management. A good example is in my last job, uh, we figured out that we had a lot of one-time buyers who were vegan. But apparently Shopify is creating a new a new account number for every person mm-hmm. or for every new email address. So if I'm Chris Richter and I'm once registering with chrisrichter at gmail.com and then with chrisrichter2 at gmail.com, mm-hmm. I will be two one-time customers, but it will be always have been sent to the same address. So you technically already know from the data, it's only one person, but it has two account numbers. So after you figure this one out, rolling it all back, that's usually the, the biggest pain. But yeah, I think that's the simple things, which, yeah, if you have done data science, you will have cried once or twice about such things. Mm-hmm. So I know that you worked for five years in clinic. What's actually the most valuable lesson you learned from that time? I'm going to say, again, the communication between different fields. Mm-hmm. And I think this will happen in, in every job. When, when you leave university, you will always have different yeah, different fields, so you need to learn different languages. Um, one thing I liked is, or I think what I learned is such things like interdependency. So one thing I learned throughout my career is that you cannot do everything on your own. So you can be the best data scientist, but if you cannot identify good aims to solve, you will never do good work. Well, if you rely on other people and hear about their problems that work together, um, they can actually help you become much better because they will present meaningful or practical meaningful tasks to be done. And then the clinic also, and, and this is, I think, the difference between research and business is technically not that big. It's just a different environment. So in a research environment, you have much more time. It's okay to fail because you've learned something. While in a business environment, it's it needs to go a bit quicker. Um, yeah, just things need to happen. Um, projects need to get done. And yeah, I think the whole package everywhere is the same. Then it's, yeah, I, I, the most thing I've learned is plotting, how to people management, learn that there's an interdependency between people, uh, research writing. Um, I was lucky enough to still be able to publish quite a lot in the clinic, which has also been really good in on the business side because people actually like that you are able to write good, clear reports. A problem is always, as a researcher, you probably write too much. <laughs> so you need to learn how to condense it down to bullet points. But yeah, this is, I would say it's its a general, it's general development, which probably would have happened in any job. And can you tell me, please, uh, what do you do now and what currently do you work? So I'm currently a senior data scientist at Kaya, which is a therapy app for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, I'm just onboarding, learning about the company because I've only started on Monday. So I cannot tell you much, but I'm going to basically do R&D into digital biomarkers because we have a, a motion coach in, within the app. So that means through the phone camera. Mm-hmm. You can film yourself and through um, artificial networks, we can predict your position, basically do the same as I have done in the clinic, uh, do movement analysis of your movements. So we can give a live feedback if you perform an exercise poorly, we can correct it. But also we then can do research in are there any factors which uh, have someone 
reduce pain faster than another? How can we classify that one intervention worked better for another person? And at the end of the day, I'm lucky enough um, to found, I would say, my old job in Dublin now in a, in a, in a new exciting startup in Munich. Okay, uh, can you please uh, tell what is the mission of this company, of Kaya Health? So the mission is to deliver best-class therapy. So the idea is to bring a personal coach into the house of every single person mm-hmm. um, so that everyone can, I would say, enjoy a good rehab program without needing to go anywhere, without needing to be uh, close to good physiotherapy. So it's just you can you can do the exercise at the comfort of your home and also to educate you about what is pain, where does pain come from, is it good, is it bad, and... Uh, last but not least, they also have a little meditation program where you actually learn to relax, to calm down, um, basically do muscle relaxation programs and, and meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say a, a well-rounded health program for you. And rehabilitation from any surgery or after some specific uh, cases? No. So uh, the most, we started with back pain, but um, we have also expanded to knee, hip, And I think neck pain as well. So, but yeah, there is. Uh, I'm still pretty clumsy on on the big details here. Sounds complicated and beautiful. Thank you. So, I would like to ask you, actually, what do you like and dislike about data science job in general? About data science, I actually like that you will always learn something new. With nowadays, technique change, data is changing. So at the end of the day, as a data scientist, I think you can do everything. You can do, if, if you come into a small company, you can be anything from a data engineer to a software developer to an actually analyst. If you go into big companies, you can become a total field expert. So the variety of stuff is already huge. But also because you have that, the chances of moving into different fields are, are amazing. I mean... If you look at my own career, I started off as a sports scientist, moved into biomechanics, then moved into data science. And I have a feel you could move in almost any field you want because the data science field already has taught you such a wide breadth of, of knowledge in different fields. So yeah, I mean, from, from data filtering to data pre-processing to sequeling databases to actually examining data to but to then also to visualize data so and there are a lot of things which are still challenging like try to visualize a 4 or 5d model so if you have a model with more than five or six variables how do they interact with each other try to explain it i mean that's research in itself and yeah there you have so many challenging tasks always and I usually like to, yeah, I like to solve puzzles or problems. And with data sciences, A, you need to find your own puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. Then you need to make sure that you have all of them. And then you need to, to bring them all together to, to end up with a, with a good, yeah, with a good outcome of your project. And I would say just the freedom in approaches, you have to actually choose to do what you want to do. It, it's pretty much amazing. And Yeah, nowadays with, with the data variable, mm-hmm. it, it's it's just crazy what you can do and how much also how much value you can add to a company by doing pretty easy things. 
So, but what is the least favorite part of your job? Is there any? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's always the, the unclean data, trying to, to solve it. Or the moment you have actually developed a pretty nice algorithm when it crashes at your last cross-validation or at your last simulation <laughs> after waiting. Or it's usually you start a code, you go out for coffee because you know it's going to run for two hours. And basically the moment you leave the door, it's going to crash. It, because it never crashes when you're still in the room, so you could fix it, or it never crashes at the very end. It's only it's always crashes the moment you go out of house. <laughs> Great. So okay, Chris, what uh, what interests you most in data science, and what do you think is the biggest unsolved question or problem in data science? I'm gonna start with the easy question: What interests me most? I do like learn about new things. I like to understand new things, and I like to discover things. Um, so with data science, it's basically now I get paid to do exactly discovering things and solving tasks, which which is ideal. I mean, if we now talk about the biggest unsolved issues, we could go from anywhere to climate change to politics, which is probably almost impossible to really tackle with. Well, data science can give an input, but now if you're going to ask me for what's the big model you could build, there's probably no such one big model because just gathering the data would or bringing it together is almost impossible. Also then, which may, which probably should be tackled, but it's going to be a very, very tough job. Okay, now it's time for a fun question. Uh, I'm curious personally, did you ever apply to your data scientist skills out of your work life to solve some problem in, I mean, related to yourself? Uh, I would say everyone in statistics has ever done this or will do it. Technically, every day in life, you update your priors, or at least you try to be objective to update your priors to make the next prediction um, in terms of, oh, what job should I take? What should I buy? Um, I think, yes, I would probably do it rather often. Um, and that's usually not appreciated by people, like even if... Yeah, if you go to a party and start talking about, oh, what is the likelihood of people splitting up and you have only couples sitting around you? That's what no one wants to hear, especially if you're just in love, because then you will stay together forever. But I think, yeah, especially as a, as a person who has been in the field, you start looking at things a bit different. Um, do you have some example? I don't know. Did you calculate, for instance, the... Uh, the probability that you catch the boss uh, in that situation or something like that? Uh, no, there, um, I actually don't think I have crazy examples. So where you actually start looking, and where I always notice myself catching the wrong things, is as a biomechanist, if you, walk, if you would walk past me, I would always check out your gate. So if you have something really, really weird, I will literally you out follow you and stare at you just trying to oh my god this poor little knee well i think on on the data scientist role um i would know if you click on a on a link uh to a questionnaire or something you would always try to uh, look at the link try to figure actually out oh what are they capturing and if i now look at your link i can clearly see what's the session name and who's actually your guest uh so i don't think that happens to normal people anymore yeah i think also then just classifying yourself as abnormal quite often because you do certain things um and i think just language changes so 
you, you do quite a lot already within, I think, you change a lot within your thinking. So you talk more in if statements, right? Or... <laughs> Ah, see, I should have thought about this example myself. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like running. I'm avid runner. And I don't know, maybe you have some knowledge about knees and running. Uh, what people can do actually to prevent the damage of our joints while we run? Can you say something? Oh, well, there is, I would say, if you have never, if you never been running, don't start with 10 or 15 kilometer runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, start slowly and increase your runs gradually. Mm-hmm. And probably the easiest thing is, um, if you can hear yourself running, like you should probably try to run more quiet because you know the louder the, st- the footstep, probably the bigger your impact to your joints. So that means a lot, a lot of forces needs to get ab- absorbed. If you uh, look at me running, would you give me some advices? Uh, I'm not sure how good it is to speak to people. I just saw you walking by and I, it looks like you have very weird biomechanics. You probably wouldn't be laughing in this case. So now I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't talk to you. I would just keep it to myself and have the, the if statement run in my actual head. Okay. Yeah, so no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buck you in public. Okay, Chris, and my uh, traditional closing question. Let's imagine that you have all the resources and all of the time in the world and you are able to work on any project you want. What that would be? Uh, I would obviously make a best choice estimator, which is accepted by the white public so that anyone can basically ask their question and get a good answer. I would say almost like Google. So that we can actually tackle the big problems like, I don't know, politics, climate change, and that we also have a cross-variant to also have an acceptance by public within this, that you can actually also get an accepted answer, which is improving, I would say, all of our lives. And I think with Kaya and the clinic, I have started on a small scale, Mm -hmm. so I I can do my part to it and uh, let the biology questions and the i'm gonna say environment questions to the other scientists so uh, that you and all of your listeners have something to study to as well cool um so chris thank you so much for your time it was so much fun and i really appreciate it thank you thank you for being today with us Uh, thanks for having me And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Metaphase Podcast at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcast, or just tell a friend about it. Thanks, and see you next time.